Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I will be delving into season three of the Netflix original show, Stranger Things. Uh, obviously, as you heard at the beginning of the show, there are spoilers ahead because I will be talking about season three and uh, doing a bit on uh, each episode here as I watch them. Uh, I want to watch one and then do the recording so that I can keep fresh in my head and before the episodes start to blend together, which they tend to do after uh, three or four, for me anyway. can't remember, oh, is this on episode one or three or, or whatever? Uh, so I think it's important to kind of keep things in the continuity of the episode, although we'll see how well I do with that as we go on. Um, but uh, let's get into it. The, the thing that I thought was really cool is that they give you a four and a half minute recap of what's happened on the show so far, so that if it's been a while since you've seen it or reacquainted yourself with it, you can uh, get up to speed on the important things. And uh, they also give you the option to skip it with a little skip button, which I think is really cool. I love that Netflix does that, especially on uh, shows when you're binge watching, you don't want to hear the theme over and over and over again. So it's nice to just be able to push past that and get right into the episode. Uh, So thank you for doing that. Uh, Let's talk about the opening scene of the actual show. So you're in this CERN looking building and uh, there's, there's obviously this big machine and they're about to turn it on. And uh, the first thing you see is a guy in a military outfit. You get that he's probably the top in command. He's smoking a cigarette in this lab, which is probably not going to happen in a real lab, but they do this in, in film and television all the time because they want to make the guy look like a jerk right? They want to make you dislike him right off the bat. So they stick a cigarette in his hand or they make him, you know, eat something or, you know, whatever the the trick is, but it's just basically something to show, Hey, I'm a condescending prick and I'm in charge. So I'm going to do what I want. Um, not a fan of that myself. Uh, I, I just think that the fact that he's there uh, present in the room and what you see him do later is enough for you to understand that he's actually in charge. Um, and then, Here's where I I just get lost right off the bat, because as I've said before on the show, if the writing doesn't make sense, if what the characters actions are don't make sense, I have a hard time following the story. And I'm pretty open minded. You could take me on the most fantastic journey, uh, whether it was Star Wars or Jurassic Park or Lost or all these different, uh, you know, imaginary worlds that I've been through. And I'm willing to go with you on that journey, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how fantastic, no matter how insane they are, I'm willing to go with you on that journey. But to make it work, the things that people would do have to be believable, right? And I gave, I've given the example on the show about Poltergeist, the remake of the movie that came out a couple years ago, where this family who has no income, the father's just lost his job, the woman's a writer who hasn't started her first book yet. And yet they just got qualified by a mortgage company for a three-story house. And uh, that's not happening. Maybe at best, there was some sort of government assistant program for uh, first-time home buyers or something like that, where they were able to uh, take advantage of that. But still, it's it's not very likely. And, and there was no explanation, nothing that headed in that direction that would explain how they got the house. Just, oh, yeah, you're approved for your loan, even though you have absolutely no income and no reason for us to believe in you whatsoever. Uh, Having a hard time with that. So right there, 20 minutes in, they lost me. And then it was really hard to believe about or care about anything else that went on the journey because the world was not believable. Yet I can watch a movie like Star Wars or Lost or Lord of the Rings and completely believe the worlds, the creatures, the storyline, the fantasy of it all. 
because what the characters are doing makes sense. It seems realistic when the characters are acting the way that human beings would act or orcs or, you know, whatever you're, uh, you're following around droids. Uh, so that was the first issue that I had with this show. And if it's nitpicky, I'm sorry, but that's just the way that I, I see things. And so, you know, I've seen the show, this episode one time, I'm giving my opinions based on one viewing of the episode. Uh, I may feel completely differently about some of these things as I see the shows again, but certainly not on this point at all. Um, this is a, a pretty typical movie trope. And, um, here's the part that doesn't make sense. They walk into the to this room, this this obviously secured uh, facil- scientific facility. They have two keys that need to be used to turn on this machine. And both of the keys are in the same briefcase. Well, why would you have two keys for security purposes, right? So if you're trying to make sure that this is all done securely and properly, why would you put both keys in the same briefcase? You wouldn't. Two different people would have to have access to those keys coming from two different locations, two different uh, points of security. It just doesn't make any sense. And then they don't even turn the keys at the same time. So you could have one person turn the key, take one step over and turn the other key and have somebody do this completely on their own. So all this extra measurement of of having a secure briefcase, uh, it just it's so unnecessary because the actual act, anybody could walk in and do that. And since the keys are together, in one briefcase, you know, if you could just get into the briefcase, then you're good to go for everything else. So uh, it just seems really, really poorly done. But uh, but that's the world they're giving you. And then they use the two keys to turn on the machine that at first is sort of reminiscent of the collider at CERN, uh, the way that it's, it's laid out. Uh, certainly gave me that impression anyway. But then when it actually turns on, it's more like that huge machine in 13 Ghosts that's actually vertical that gets the motor running uh, and then shoots out this beam into the wall. Uh, Now you kind of get that what they're doing is they're breaking into the wall and into whatever their, whatever their version of the upside down is, or are the same as the uh, other scientific facility that we've seen where they can go into uh, that other world and, uh, and, and interact with it. And so I don't know if this was intentional. I'm going to say it is, but as they're breaking into a new world, almost like uh, a birthing coming out of our world into their new world, the thing cracks and opens up like a vagina, very obviously vagina looking. And uh, so that's why I think it was done on purpose. And metaphorically, it makes sense. Uh, a little weird though, but okay, you go with it. And uh, the the uh, upside down or whatever it is fights back and actually prevents the machine from opening it. And there's a, a bit of a scar there. You can kind of see into it a little bit. And um, then the uh, the officer of the the military and the scientist guys come down. But let me let me before they come down. Here's what happens. So there's these workers that are working around the machine around this energy beam that's being blasted into the wall. Why are they there? They're wearing these gas masks. You know it's a dangerous area, although when the scientists come out, they're not wearing gas masks, so I don't know why these other soldiers were. That makes no sense. And why would you put people out there right next to this beam? It's got to be hot. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. And of course, they're basically there to die. So that's the only reason they're there. They, they would, In a real-life situation like that, I highly doubt they would actually have people running around there next to where the beam is just doesn't make sense. And then they're in gas masks and then the scientists come down and the military guy comes down and nobody's wearing a gas mask. Doesn't make a lot of sense. 
So those kind of things just, they just really kind of get on my nerves. But so now they're all, all the, the soldiers are dead. The scientists and military guys are there looking around. He touches the hole, which of course, you're going to put your hand on that right after a laser was just burning into that for 30 seconds. And, um, and then this uh, other military guy just picks up the lead scientist up into the air, Darth Vader style and chokes him. And uh, why? Because it didn't work. How are they supposed to know what's going to break through that and not? I mean, there's going to be some trial and error. So the the military guy lets him do it. The main military guy just lets his his second in command or whoever choke the life out of the scientist, goes to the second scientist and basically goes, it's your job now. Well, okay. So now he's working under the duress of, well, they're going to kill me if I don't get it right the fir- the next time. And how much information was lost by killing the first scientist? I mean, it was their first run through probably, and it didn't go through. But, you know, how many times in movies does that happen versus does that ever happen in real life? Are people just killed because they their experiment didn't work perfectly the first time? It All the knowledge that that person has, okay, well, that didn't work. And if that didn't work, then we try this or we try that. Why would you kill them off? That just makes no sense whatsoever. So for any of you who have ever been in a situation like that, I would be curious to know how realistic that uh, end result is, because that just doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense to me, yet they do it in movies all the time. Seems very strange to me. So then uh, the the show theme comes on, which is really cool. You know, you love that familiar Stranger Themes thing, which is just a brilliant piece of music. I absolutely love it. That little haunting voice uh, choral section in there is just really makes it for me. Plus that 80s sounding synth and that pulse is just phenomenal. Uh, and again, they give you the option to skip it if you don't want to hear it. Uh, and then they go into uh, the first scene of the show, which is uh, Mike and Eleven making out at Hopper's house. And, you know, you kind of figured this was going to happen. They kissed at the snowball at the end of season two. Um, they missed each other. They were going to spend time together. Obviously, they realized that time is precious and they're not going to take a chance on being apart any more than they have to, because uh, that was a, a grueling number of months for them in the meantime. So I get that. And of course, Hopper's all upset. And of course, she's using her power to, to distance himself from her so that she can keep uh, spending time with Mike, doing whatever they want to do. And uh, that's the first bit of separation that we see, which is going to be a long running theme in this episode. And I'm guessing the entire season. We saw some of it in season two with Dustin separating himself from the group to hide his creature, which I didn't, which was the whole problem I had with season two, because he's the one that was the proponent of everybody being unified and honesty and let's tell each other the truth and all this stuff. And then he's the one that's been hiding. I just didn't buy it. Um. So then we go to the mall, and uh, which is the first time we've seen the mall. It's a new mall in town. And Steve Herring, Steve Herring, the cool guy with the cool hair, who's just the badass that all the women want, is working at an ice cream parlor wearing a uniform. Here's this, the next thing I don't buy about this, this episode is I can't imagine he would have taken a job like that. I could see him taking a, a job where he can still keep his looks, where he isn't going to be in full view of people wearing a stupid uniform. Uh, Not buying that at all. They could have put him at a bookstore, would have made more sense. They could have put him at a shoe store, would have made more sense. But an ice cream parlor, I I don't think a guy with his uh, view of himself would have taken a job like that. I like his coworker though. I don't know if she's his boss or or what, but I I like her. She's really uh doesn't say much, just very distanced. 
uh, is, uh, you know, like a lot of people are, they're just kind of loners. Um, she talks with a very, you know, monotone, I, I care about this because it's funny, but I really don't like you kind of thing. And so, you know, that most likely they're setting this up for his new romance. And uh, I, I think that that will develop a little slowly over time. She's making fun of him. Oh, you know, here's your your next dork moment. I'll put the check on the board. Kind of like that, uh, you know, the little boy pulls the pigtails of the girl saying, oh, but I like you. I want to be with you because you're really cute. And I'm just going to do something mean because we weren't taught any better. But that's how life worked. And unfortunately still works. Um, so I kind of think that there's a potential love interest brewing there. Plus he's striking out with every girl that's coming to the, to them for ice cream because he's wearing a stupid little hat in his uniform and trying to be super cool, overcompensating for the uniform, trying to go out of his way to be extra cool. Um, just doesn't work. Uh, but anyway, so he's got his job at the ice cream parlor. So here's the part I like about this though, is that he sneaks the kids into a movie and this shows that they've kept their bond that they developed at the end of season two. Uh, I really like this because I think that they needed somebody who's a little older helping them out. And uh, I, I like the fact that it's him because it shows that at the, at the end of the day, he really is a good guy. He's trying to be cool. You know, he's trying to fit in to, to the world and, and everything. But at the end of the day, he's a cool guy. He's, he's taking care of looking after these kids. So I do like that part. Um, then the power outage happens at the mall. And I don't like this scene. And and here's why, because I don't know anything about power grids. Okay. I really don't. I'm just to be totally honest about that. But when they go to the outside of the mall, they're panning and most of the town is dark. There's like two lights left on at the mall, which slowly go out. And then as they pan the camera to the left, there's like a light here that goes out and a light there that goes out. It's almost like following the pan of the camera going, hey, there's still life here that we're going to snuff out. But yet everything around it has been in total darkness for seconds. And it would seem to me that when the grid goes down, for whatever reason, within about three seconds, the whole thing's going to be out. I can't imagine that some of these things that, you know, four or five seconds later after everything around it is out, there's still lights on in those areas. And if they were, you know, lights that were on uh, from generators, they're not going to go out because of the power outage. So again, doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, although it did make for a cool shot. I really like the visual of it. Uh, But story-wise, again, I don't don't really think that things happen like that. So I'm going to call foul on that. Again, uh, you're more than welcome to dispute that. If you know something I don't know about power grids, which I know nothing about them, please feel free to correct me on that. Uh, Then I will never say it again. So uh, the power outage happens. And of course, uh, you know, Will still has some kind of connection to the source of all this because he feels something happening. And uh, it just goes to show that at the end of season two, when they got the demon out of him and all that, there's still whatever connection was with him in the beginning that caused him to get taken is still there. So he is obviously going to be the connection or at least one of the connections to all of this. Uh, as as we go forward. And it's going to be curious to see how it plays out this season because they've already pulled that off well through two seasons. So I'm, I'll be curious to see what they do with him uh, the third go around. Uh, then we find out that Nancy and Charlie are together. So here's here's part of why I like that Steve is going to be the the sort of mentor to the kids because Nancy and Charlie are moving on with their lives. They're together. They're in a relationship. They have a job that they work at together that's new with the newspaper. 
And uh, so now they're going to be with the kids less, even though they weren't with them that much. They, they were still sort of catalysts in uh, helping them out. So now they're separated, again, a little bit of separation from the rest of the group. So at least now they have Steve to kind of be someone who steps in and looks after them. Um, so now they have their new jobs. And, and of course, you know, uh, there's there's got to be an issue with them. So they're panicking about potentially being late to work. She doesn't care whether he's late. She only cares whether she's late, uh, which which I, I kind of like that people take pride in in uh, the way they present themselves. She doesn't want to get fired. She wants to show that she's a good worker. Um, obviously, women in the 80s had a lot more to do to prove themselves as being valid for some stupid reason, but they had to work harder to uh, be taken seriously, to be appreciated and respected in the workplace. So I like that she's at least considered of that for that time frame. I think it's stupid that that stuff still goes on today. I think it's stupid it ever did, but it did, and that's the reality of it. So uh, I kind of like that she's concerned about uh, about getting to work. Um, so the next the next thing that I have an issue with is is Dustin. Now I like Dustin. We all like Dustin. He's he's a you know he's an interesting character. He's a cute kid. He's uh, he's really uh, excitable. But he's coming home from science camp, which I think is a great move. By the way, that's very natural for a kid like him to go to science camp. Although why he didn't get all the the friends to go with him seems kind of weird. It seems like he would have wanted them all to be there, but uh, that's okay because again part of that separation. He was separated from the group for the, for the summer or for part of the summer. And, um, he, he gets on his radio in the car with his mom on the way home. And he's like, are you guys there? Click. Are you guys there? Click. Are you guys there? Like, he's not even giving them a second to answer. And from what I remember about these kind of radios in the old days was that you can't hear somebody respond if your button is pressed in and you're talking. You know, it's not a two-way radio that way. So he's not even giving them a chance to respond for them to, for him to hear any response from them whatsoever because he's going, are you there? Click, are you there? Click, are you there? Click. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. There's no way he would get a response. And he would know that. He would definitely know that because he's had a lot of interaction with these walkie-talkies. So I, I did have to call foul on that. I really didn't like that at all. Plus, you know, does he really think that everybody's sitting around on their radio radios just waiting for him to come home? Um, kind of ridiculous. I get he, that he's excited, but, you know, just like try. They don't respond. All right, I'll try again a little bit later. I'll try when we get home or when we're closer to home or whatever. Don't know how far away the camp is. So I don't know. Didn't really uh, didn't really care for that. And then he gets home. Nobody's there to greet him. Poor Dustin. And he looks at the turtle and goes, at least you're happy to see me. And I'm like, how does, what, what happened that he knows the turtle is happy? The turtle looked at him. Of course, there's motion, there's movement. The turtle's going to look at movement, but a turtle can't signify, hey, I'm happy you're here. He's not going to jump up and down on you like a dog would. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of a weird thing. I, I could see him saying something like, well, I hope that you're happy I'm here at least, even though no one else seems to care. I could see him saying that. But, you know, come on, writers, this, you know, it's got to make sense. So... The, the robots start moving around. And when you really think about it, I can kind of see him being nervous because after everything he's been through, he's just come home. He doesn't know what's going on. He hasn't talked to anybody. Things should be could be easily going on. There could be a new creature. There could be more you know action happening that he's not aware of. So I totally get him freaking out, even though the most logical answer is it's probably Eleven doing this to him. And they're obviously leading him somewhere, you know, so... If, if it was a creature, it just would have attacked him. If it's doing something that's playful, it's probably going to be 11. 
So, but I, but like I said, I can, I can go with him being like, oh my God, what's going on? Getting a weapon, that sort of thing, as ridiculous of a weapon as a can of hairspray is, even though it works. Um, so then, of course, they're all hiding and he jump scares. And of course, he's going to spray somebody with, uh, you know, with the hairspray. So, you know, you kind of saw that playing out, uh, coming up, but then they're all together and, you know, they're, they're, uh, having their, their reunion moment. Now the, you see the entire group together and, uh, it's, it's a pretty cool, you know, a pretty cool little moment. But then the down note comes and here comes Billy now in a position of authority, which is just great. And of course, the uh, the women are already lined up to swoon over him because of reasons. But uh, interestingly, one of the people, and I th- I didn't recognize her right away, but I thought it might be Karen. And as it turns out, it's Karen, which is really cool because they had their little uh, moment when he was looking for his sister at the end of season two. Obviously, there was an attraction between them. Uh, I like Karen. I think that she's a, a, a good character. I really wish they would have utilized her more in season two. I'm really glad that she's back for season three. Uh, she's a great actress too. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, so I'm not going to try. But I did uh, see her on Mad Men, and uh, I thought she was a very talented actress. And I was very glad to see her on this show. So, uh, so cool. She's back, but she's going after this, uh, you know, this complete douchebag, and uh, potentially cheating on her husband. Who I, I don't really get their dynamic. Um, I would have liked to have seen some backstory on them like ten years ago to see why they even got together because. He's really kind of a, you know, a, a, a dork. And um, I, I just don't see how those two ended up together. But, you know, when you look at a lot of couples, you could say that. So anyway, she goes out of her way to make sure that uh, he sees her at the pool. All these women are playing this game to, you know, oh, we don't care about you. Pay attention to us kind of thing. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see where this leads. But, you know, I don't right off the bat, you know, he's picking on this kid. I think he called him lardass or something like that and you know that would not happen he would not keep his job somebody would be complaining there's other lifeguards in the area there's management out there there's other people tending to the pool somebody would have said something and he would not be allowed to keep his job or he at least would have been severely reprimanded for uh for those actions so i get he's the bad boy and we have to show bad boy actions but i mean again it's got to be realistic and i don't see that going uh unpunished and but to be fair, maybe that is yet to come. I've only seen the first episode, so maybe that is dealt with in a future episode. I don't know. Um, his life may be derailed, as we see later on, anyway. So, uh, but but I had to point that out for the moment. Um, I, I have to call bullshit on that. So uh, so they do their things, and and uh, Karen's back, yay! And then we go to Joyce and Hopper and Joyce seems to have been able to keep her job at the market after all the excessive time in the grocery bill that she ran up during season one. But I really like that Joyce is back and I really like her character. Uh, We finally get to see what she's like without all the stress and insanity in her life. Things seem to be going good in the town right now. And so she's uh, obviously gotten some rest. She is, uh, you know, calm. Her eyes are clear. She's speaking without uh, shaking. She's actually really cool. And that just goes to show what a great actress Winona Ryder really is because of the way that she's had to portray this character for the first two seasons. And now she can just be a normal person for a while. Uh, How long? I don't know. But obviously, as I said, when I watched the uh, season three trailer and did my review of that, 
there's uh, the the beginnings, I think, of a romance between her and Hopper, which I think has probably been brewing over the years. But uh, you know, the circumstances that have brought them together and the the insanity and all of that probably uh, is is escalating. But I think that uh, this is going to be a slow build because we've got so many other relationships that are happening. Um, but it's kind of cool to see uh, to see them and uh, see the beginning of that build. But uh, I'm excited to see how things go for Joyce now that she's uh, she's got a minute to breathe while her son isn't, uh, you know, being tortured by a demon or, or uh, in a void somewhere that she can't reach. So it's and it's nice for her to just have a, you know, a little bit of a calm time. So uh, then we go to uh, Nancy's new job and the condescending assholes that she works with. Uh, she's obviously low person on the totem pole. She's bringing the coffee, bringing the sandwiches for them in their meeting. And big mistake, she speaks in a meeting, which how dare you, you know, have an idea that us men don't come up with. Uh, you bring the sandwiches and pour the coffee, honey, the ideas are ours. And even though her idea is fantastic, uh, they just treat her like complete shit, as uh, as was very common in those days. Uh, unfortunately, that happens a lot. Um, so, you know, they're setting up the... She's kind of... I don't know the right words here. She's kind of not a loner so much, but... She'll take care of business on if she has to. She's spunky and uh, kind of setting up for her to be spunky very specifically by treating and showing, showing that, yeah, we don't care about your opinion, so don't give it to us. Uh, we call that comes later on. Uh, I think this really sets up what I believe her potential is after that, but we'll get to that later. Um, so, uh, but it's interesting because uh, on episode 50, my guest Dev Ross and I were speaking about uh, that sort of world when she became the first female staff writer for Disney and how uh, a lot of the men treated her. Uh, I, I love that she fought back, but uh, this is also uh, related to the show Good Girls Revolt. that was based on the novel of the same name and, and how it was back then where women did a lot of the grunt work and men took all the credit because, you know, you're a woman. How could you have any thoughts? Just stupid mentality that we had uh, in this country and still goes on in here and a lot of other places in the world. Uh, but that's the way things were. And being that this show takes place in the 80s, it's being true to form of the times. So I can appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Then we go back to Steve and his uh, his horrible efforts to impress girls while wearing a stupid uniform at the ice cream place. More uh, relationship building between him and his uh, sort of, uh, you know, non-emotional co-worker who seems to take enormous glee in uh, in the fact that he's failing. Probably, again, because she wants him for herself. Uh, then back to Joyce and Hopper, who uh, Joyce is trying to help him deal with uh, Eleven's budding hormones and her and Mike's constant making out sessions. Um, I, I could see, especially after losing his own daughter, why he would feel a little more possessive of Elle, plus all the people that have tried to hunt her and her special powers and everything else. So, you know, I get where he's coming from, but I think they're playing it a little bit over the top. Um He's he's okay with yelling at her at times, so I don't know why this would be any different. But uh, trying to have a calmer conversation with her, as he's tried to do, hasn't always worked out uh, for the best, and he sometimes ends up injured. So I could I could understand a certain amount of caution, but um, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Uh, again, though, obvious separation now because he used to be able to come home and have a conversation with Elle, and now that it's uh, she's with Mike. He doesn't really feel as much a part of her life. So again, he's being separated from her. And, and there's more of that reoccurring theme that we've talked about. So uh, 
I, I like that that's happening. I like that he's struggling because it just further emphasizes the point of how many people are really going in different directions as the effects of season two, the, uh, the power of everything that happened and how people usually band together. Eventually that peters off, which happens after a tragedy. People band together, they're supportive. And then as time goes on, people just go back into their lives. And it's not that those things didn't happen, but the reactions have, have changed and gone back to normal. So it's very, uh, very, you know, understanding that everybody would be kind of pairing off and going their separate ways as their interests change as they get older. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's the next day and or, or later that day, and the kids are in the field, they're going to put up the antenna. And uh, of course, you know, Mike and Elle want to break off and, and go make out some more because they have some time. And uh, so they start separating from the group, more separation. And then the group continues on up the hill. And Will stops because he's sensing something. The, the rats are running by. And I don't know how none of those kids heard all that chittering from the rats. But now he's separating himself from the group. They're yelling at him to catch up. They're not going back for him, even after everything he's been through. Uh, they're just like, hey, just catch up to us. I'm sure nothing weird is happening with you, even though you're the one that the weirdest stuff happens to. So, uh, again, he separates himself a little bit from the group. Of course, eventually he does catch up, but he's sensing something, showing that he's still connected again to all of this uh, stuff going on. Um, and then, uh, let's see. So, Billy and Karen then have their moment that uh, just reinforces the uh, some kind of affair thing is building between them. Whether that actually happens or not remains to be seen, but definitely something's budding. Uh, then then uh, Dustin and, and group are putting up the antenna array. And I've got to say, I love the effort that the sound designers went to while they were putting this thing together. They had this really interesting little sort of almost motorized clicking sound. Um, I'm going to call a foul on it, though, because I don't think that, that there are motors in there that are keeping things together. I think it's probably just going to be some sort of locking mechanism at best. So I don't think the sound was really suited to it, but I definitely appreciate the effort. It was a cool sound. I just don't really think he went to all that trouble on the pole. You know, that, that seems excessive to me. And he's a pretty smart kid. He's going to spend his time on the stuff that matters. I don't really see motorized pole sections being uh, that important. Uh, but I, I could be wrong. I could be missing something. But uh, so for me, that piece of sound design didn't work. But I do appreciate the effort. Definitely uh, pretty cool. Um, then we're uh, we're back to Joyce, who is uh, getting all dressed up and perfecting her look and her feeling about herself to go meet Billy the asshole for her affair. And uh, as she comes down the stairs and getting ready to sneak out of the house, she hears her husband snoring. And of course, you know, she's got to go look. And there he is with his daughter laying on him and they're, they're both fast asleep. And so you're wondering now, is she, is she having second thoughts? Is she feeling guilt? Is she still going to go? We don't know. Uh, and Billy, of course, uh, we see driving down to uh, wherever he's going to meet her. And uh, he gets uh, something, hits his windshield and he gets completely derailed, gets into a car accident, hits a tree and uh, I don't know anything about sports cars, especially back in the 80s. I don't know if they had push button starters back then, but it seems like he pressed a button and then got pissed off because the car didn't work. Uh, definitely did not make a motion to turn keys. So uh, I will just assume that it was a push button start car and that that's all in continuity still uh, gets out, you know, uh, really upset because it's, it's in his character's tendency to just react with uh, anger and emotion than it is to sit down and, and okay, the car's not starting, but the radio's playing, so it's not the battery. 
you know, what's going on. He gets out. He's all pissed off about the car being damaged, which, of course, is his prized possession. So I don't know. A lot of different things going on with him. And then uh, he hears something and he gets uh, his leg grabbed and he's dragged through this. uh, It looks kind of like a greenhouse. I'm not sure exactly what it is or where he is. He's just like out uh, again, separated from everything else. He's kind of out in the country somewhere. And uh, next thing you know, he gets dragged down a flight of stairs. Now, I don't know what this place is, but it's obviously something interesting because not only does it have uh, this, you know, the the uh, yard that he can get dragged on the ground from then into this sort of greenhouse or warehouse thing. But now we know it's subterranean because he's being dragged down a flight of stairs from the ground. And of course, he's screaming. But here's the part that, again, doesn't work. He's being dragged down a flight of stairs face first, and then they cut to a wide shot and you hear him screaming. There's no way he's still screaming because his face is going to be bouncing off the stairs. So again, great shot, great sound effect, great isolation, you know, a little more uh, reinforcement of that. But it it just didn't work for me because you can't be screaming with your face being uh, bouncing up and down stairs. And uh, even if he would have held his head up, So he could scream and someone could hear him. Uh, His chin would have still been hitting the stairs and his body is still bumping up and down stairs. So again, no way you're screaming like that. Uh, All the pressure is on your chest and your stomach. So you don't have the ability to take in a breath to scream like that. Writers, it just doesn't make sense. I'm not even going to blame the writers. I'll just say production because that could have been the director. It could have been an idea of the cinematographer, whatever. Uh, But the end result is it just didn't work for me. So let's uh, let's go back to uh, to Dustin. And now it's dark and there's st- he's still sitting there trying to reach his girlfriend. At least this time he's giving her a couple of seconds to respond before calling out to her again as if she is if she's just walking into the room eventually every five seconds. Um, but then, uh, you know, of course, everybody's like, uh, oh, she's probably not even real. Uh, not buying that because it, why would he go through all of that trouble to make up a girlfriend where he could have just said, Hey, I think I can reach UFOs or, Hey, I think I can reach this or that. Let's see what we can get. Why would he make up a girlfriend? That doesn't even make sense. So I don't, I don't get that line of thinking at all in saying that, that he made that up. Um, that just seems really stupid to me. And, uh, but of course, you know, they all pack up and leave and now he's isolated out in the woods by himself or out on this hill by himself. And, um, he hears a voice, which is an obvious male voice speaking a foreign language. And he's still asking if it's Susie. It's not Susie. It's definitely not Susie. Unless Susie has a B. Arthur type voice, it's not her. And why would she be speaking in Russian? So again like this stuff just doesn't make any sense he would hear the voice and go who is that i would think before he would answer so again just another thing that i'm not quite uh i'm not quite buying um but the the episode is moving very nicely at this point Uh, a lot of stuff has happened a lot of stuff is unfolding it's a great setup episode so Let's see. The next thing is they go back to the uh, the science place where the uh, the opening took place. And uh, now the second in command scientist guy is the first in command scientist guy. And uh, under the threat of death, he's now running his own second experiment. He uh, walks into the room after the machine's already fired up. So who turned the keys this time and under whose orders? Because it seems like he would have been one of the two people 
or at least would have been in the room and nodded to them to turn the keys on. So uh, again, uh, not making a lot of sense. But uh, so then you don't really know what happens from there. Uh, obviously, they've got all new people because most of the people were killed in the first incident. Uh, let's see, then we go to the uh, Karen thing and then um, the uh, the Billy thing. And then now with regard to the the isolation of Billy in this case, it's weird when we're thinking about the time frame of this stuff. At least it is to me, because my first instinct is, well, why didn't he just pull out his phone and call somebody, you know, or whatever? Well, he doesn't have a phone because it's in the 80s and they didn't have cell phones. This is pre-internet. So, um, it, you know, keeping it in the context of it, it's really nice to see the uh, the the having to make decisions and find ways to get around things instead of just having easy escape routes all the time uh, with the technology that we have today. So it's kind of interesting to watch that all unfold. And but I think that for us watching it in in the world that we live in today makes it even uh, a bigger feeling of isolation because he can't just call somebody. And of course, if this was a modern thing, then there would be no signal because that's what we do in TV and movies all the time. Uh, but for me, thinking about it, and like, well, I would just pick up my phone. Oh, yeah, you can't. Wow, what does he do? He's out in the middle of nowhere. It's night. Maybe nobody lives at this place where he's at right now. It could be abandoned. Who knows? Uh, he can't just knock on the door. And of course, you know, he's taken away by the creature. But it really kind of adds to that feeling, doesn't it? Because we don't have the modern conveniences as we're watching this show that we would uh, if this were, were happening in uh, in today's time. So uh, I think that really adds to it uh, quite a bit. And uh, that's pretty much it. The uh, the episode ends and uh, as he's dragged down the flight of stairs and then there's that uh, that long away, far away shot with him screaming uh, ridiculously while being dragged down a flight of stairs face first. But uh, overall, I really like this. I think it was a great action packed episode. I think that uh, a lot of stuff happened and a lot of stuff that's going to be setting up the other seven episodes of, of this season. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. Despite some of the negatives, uh, I really like this episode. And, and I think that I'm comfortable enough with the show to let some of the stuff go by and me still accept the the things that are happening in the show, like the details of him, you know, get, of uh, him getting face first uh, down the staircase and still screaming. Um, that kind of stuff, like I can let that go a little bit because we're third season now. If it was first season, I probably would just say, yeah, I, I have a really hard time believing anything that goes on in this world because of all these other stupid things that take me away from it. And uh, I've talked about this on the show before. When I go to the movie theater, which I don't very often, but when I do, one of the things that I really uh, love is that I can get engrossed in the movie and not realize that I'm even a thing that I I'm just watching the movie uh, and then I'll something will happen and it'll break me out of it. And I'll realize like I'm a human being and I'm sitting in a movie theater and there's the edge of the screen. And um, I'm not just so into the story that I completely forget the world around me exists. And um, when I see things like that, that don't match in continuity, when I see things that don't make sense, uh, when I see characters do things that they really wouldn't do that are just so far out of character or people respond in ways they wouldn't respond, I find it very difficult to buy everything else that happens. And so it's that edge of the screen moment for me where I've come out of the movie and realize, oh, I'm in a theater and they have to really work hard to get me back into that. I forget I'm in a theater mode and I just get so engrossed in the story again. It's really hard to do that. So when there's those little continuity things or little character flaw things or, or uh, you know, sounds that don't really work, uh, that's just kind of the way that I get with it. I, I see the edge of the screen. So 
but sometimes, you know, if you're into it enough, you can kind of let some of that stuff go. And I kind of feel like that's where I am right now with this because it's season three, but hopefully the, whatever I see going forward will be minimized. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't see things that take me out of the show, but we'll see how it goes. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to my review of episode one of season three of stranger things on Netflix. And, uh, I hope you liked it and maybe you'll tune in for episode two as soon as I get that done. Talk to you soon. Bye.